Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardi Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. My fellow Cardionerds, welcome back to another awesome case discussion. Today, we are so honored to be joined by colleagues and cardiology fellows from the University of Mississippi Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Joining us today to teach us are doctors Catherine Lowe, Chris Latour, and Idi Saberwal. Folks, welcome to the show. Super excited to learn from you. I saw the case images and the media, so I'm really excited to dive in. But before we do, tell the audience who you are. Hello, everyone. I'm Catherine Lowe. I'm a current third-year cardiology fellow at University of Mississippi Medical Center. My interests going forward are interventional and structural cardiology with plans to do a interventional fellowship beginning next year. Hey, everyone. My name is Chris Latour. I'm from the New Orleans area. I did my residency here at University of Mississippi Medical Center and now my cardiology fellowship, and I plan on going into non-invasive cardiology. Hey, my name is Adi Summerwall. I'm a second year fellow here. I'm actually from 15 minutes away from the university, from Clinton, Mississippi, I went to college locally at Millsaps College, and I also did my residency at university, and my plan is to pursue heart failure, and I have an interest in critical care. Adi, Chris, Catherine, so excited to spend our day together over there in Jackson, Mississippi. I've never been to Mississippi, the birthplace of the blues. Tell us a little bit about Jackson. Where do you want to take us so we can hang out before we dive into our case? Jackson is a phenomenal city in a great state. There's so much to do here, so many fun local neighborhoods around the hospital that we just love to hang out in. One in particular is called the Fondren area, where they have a lot of bars, restaurants, live music, monthly festivals with live entertainment that we really enjoy. One of the other places that we love to go to is the reservoir. It is part of the Pearl River system that runs through town. And it's a large lake that has a lot of restaurants around it. You can go water skiing, wakeboarding, sailing. And one of our favorite restaurants over there is called Pelican Cove. And you can sit on the water, watch boats come in, feel the breeze, and really just relax and hang out. I love it. Why don't we hang out at the reservoir, enjoying the water at the Pelican Cove with drinks in hand? Let's do what we love doing at Cardio Nerds. Let's dive into some cardiology. 
What do you guys have for us? Today's case is something I'm really excited to discuss and get y'all's thoughts on. Our patient is a 76-year-old veteran with a history of dilated cardiomyopathy with chronic systolic heart failure with a CRTD in place. He also has a history of hypertension, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and chronic kidney disease, who showed up in our UMC clinic to establish care. His chief complaint at that time was persistent shortness of breath. Upon discussion with the patient, he had had recurrent hospitalizations over the last year for acute decompensated heart failure. He had nine admissions at outside facilities over just the last seven months. His symptoms when he came to clinic were worsening shortness of breath with just minimal exertion. Just getting up from his recliner and walking to the next room caused him extreme fatigue and shortness of breath. He was also sleeping in his recliner at night due to significant orthopnea. Even with that, sleeping up, he was still waking in the middle of night due to paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. The patient also noted that he had considerable weight gain over the last year, especially noticed in his lower extremities, which were very swollen and painful to walk. The patient came to us on a fairly good heart failure regimen. He was on Sucubitril Valsartan, high dose, metoprolol 25 milligrams daily, spironolactone 25 milligrams daily, amiodarone 200 milligrams daily, apixaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily. His past medical history, as I said, was dilated cardiomyopathy with chronic systolic heart failure, hypertension, mixed hyperlipidemia, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and chronic kidney disease. He had had a surgical history significant for a prostatectomy. He had no known drug allergies, and his family history was significant for a mother with heart failure. Catherine, thanks for going over this patient's presentation and history. But what I'm gathering so far is that this patient is really the bread and butter of what we see in our heart failure clinics, but also just uh, a lot of our cardiology clinics, but really are the, is the, type of, the phenotype of patients that's in medicine wards throughout the country, right? I mean, heart failure is one of the most common uh, reasons for admissions, readmission, and just carries a huge impact in terms of epidemiology and healthcare cost and lost quality adjusted days of life, right? So this patient is the prototype of a huge problem that we take care of as doctors, not just cardiologists. And what I'm gathering is this patient has systolic heart failure that symptomatically is in pretty advanced stages, right? He has had multiple admissions in just the past few months. That itself is a very poor prognostic indicator. And moreover, symptomatically, he's at least NYHA class three in that it's minimal exertion that results in exertional symptoms, shortness of breath, He's having all the other symptoms of heart failure with orthopnea, PND, weight gain, swelling. Not only is he decompensated, this seems to be the new norm for this patient, unfortunately. And so just to one, consider what it must be like to live with heart failure, this type of heart failure. You can't do, you know, we just think when we're talking about all the fun things that we can do in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, patients like this are really limited in the things they can do to enjoy their time with their family, their hobbies. And so, you know, my heart goes out to these patients just thinking about how limited they are. But then also, there are a lot of red flags here. This patient is nearing the sort of end-stage heart failure phenotype, and we really have to figure out what we can do. You know, one, get him back on a hemodynamic homeostasis by trying to figure out why he is decompensated, but then also uh, try to figure out what else we can do to change the trajectory. And with this sort of history and symptomatology, I start wondering about advanced heart failure therapies, who's following this patient. Clearly, this patient has somebody looking after him. 
given the heart failure regimen he's on, including RNA and other guideline-directed medical therapy, he's got a CRTD in place. So he's got a good people looking after him, but is still failing at life. And so, you know, not only does my heart go out to him, I'm very concerned about where he's headed if we don't do something. You are completely correct. And that was the thought going through our heads during his clinic visit. This patient appeared miserable and was not having a good quality of life. And our job not only was to get him feeling better, but then you're right, change the trajectory of the course that he was on if we're able to. Yeah. So what did he look like in clinic when you saw him? He looked miserable. He was, his vital signs were not significant. He was afebrile. His blood pressure was 116 over 69. His heart rate was 73, sinus. And he was saying 97% on room air. His weight was elevated, 207 pounds. But walking into the exam room, you could tell that this was an elderly gentleman who did not feel good. He was well-nourished, well-developed, but he was in mild respiratory distress just sitting on the examination table. On examination of the patient, his jugular venous pressure was significantly elevated, 18 centimeters of water, while sitting up. On cardiac auscultation, he was regular rate and rhythm, normal S1, S2, but a positive S3. We also noticed a 4L6 holosystolic murmur, loudest at the apex, that radiated to the axilla and left scapula. On pulmonary exam, his lungs had mild bibasal rails, and his extremities looked painful. There was three-plus indurated pitting edema to the thighs, and on palpation of his feet, he had cool distal extremities. So sitting here looking at this patient, knowing what I had found on physical exam, I really started to create a differential in my head of what this could be pointing towards. On examination, we heard a holosystolic murmur radiating to the left axilla and the left scapula. In my mind, holosystolic blowing and high-pitched murmurs are board questions, but are most associated with findings of mitral regurgitation. You will often appreciate the murmur at the apex. It will radiate to the axilla and the left thorax if it's a posteriorly directed jet, or to the neck or the base of the heart if it's an anterior medially projected jet. A lot of times, in advanced mitral regurgitation, you'll have a diminished S1, due to inadequate coaptation of the mitral leaflets as the LV pressure is greater than your left atrial pressure. Enlargement of the LV also causes lateral displacement of the apical impulse, which you can palpate on exam. In some patients, such as in our patient, you'll have a positive S3 gallop, which is reflective of early diastolic flow across the mitral valve into a dilated LV. Now keep in mind that in acute severe MR, you may not appreciate a murmur at all, or there may be a palpable thrill. In mitral regurgitation, there's little respiratory variation, and the murmur becomes louder when the LV volume increases, such as in acute heart failure exacerbation, due to increased venous return. Also, keep in mind that another physical exam finding is a decrease in intensity of the murmur on cardiac auscultation with standing or valsalva due to decreased venous return. And fun fact out there, for those cardio nerds listening, if the anterior leaflet is involved, the murmur may radiate to the back and reverberate up the vertebral column to the top of the head. This is known as Carvalho sign. I love the Carvalho sign. Catherine, that was a great breakdown of how to approach this physical exam. And one thing that I'm curious about, it sounds like at this point, we don't really know what the ideology of this patient's heart failure is. Of course, that's going to be important to tease out. But when you think about systolic heart failure and MR, there are a few things that come to mind, right? One, 
is it essentially primary MR with disease affecting the mitral valve apparatus itself, like rheumatic heart disease, endocarditis, radiation heart disease, which is secondarily leading to heart failure and over time LV dysfunction through volume overload. Two, is this secondary MR related to papillary muscle displacement from an ischemic heart disease? When you have a posterolateral wall is ischemic, it can essentially pull open and tether open the posterior mitral valve leaflet causing MR, and that volume overload can worsen the LV further and you've got this feedback loop. Or is it a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy from any other cause that leads to LV dilation dysfunction, annular dilation, and then this imbalance of closing and tethering forces that lead to secondary MR? So those are all considerations that are going on in my mind. What is the relationship of the MR to the LV dysfunction of this patient? What's the chicken and what's the egg? And then also, I heard that this patient has cool distal extremities. And so we think, this patient, are they warmer cold? And are they uh, wet or dry? And so clearly this patient is wet and not entirely warm, maybe potentially in a low flow type of state. So definitely thinking about the etiologies, but also my concern is going higher for this patient in terms of possibly not perfusing very well. So that's correct. We were concerned, one, for the etiology of his potential mitral regurgitation appreciate on physical exam, as well as the fact that his extremities were cool. He looked in moderate, mild to moderate respiratory distress whether or not he was cold and wet, which we suspected, and possibly in a low perfusion state. One of the other imaging that we got is an EKG in clinic, which shows sinus mechanism at a rate of 72 beats per minute with atrial sensing and V pacing and evidence of left atrial enlargement. We also had an echo during clinic prior to us seeing the patient, which showed a mildly enlarged LV diastolic diameter of 5.7 centimeters with a moderately reduced systolic function, LV ejection fraction was 30 to 35% with global hypokinesis. There was normal RV size and systolic function, and the RV systolic pressure was 56, indicating moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension. Now the thing that we were most interested in, though, was examination of the mitral apparatus. The mitral valve had moderately thickened leaflets with apical tinting, There was restriction of the posterior leaflet with resulting severe 4-plus eccentric posteriorly directed mitral regurgitation. The effective regurgitant orifice area was 0.43 centimeters squared with a regurgitant volume of 57 milliliters. And the mean gradient across the valve, though, was only 3 millimeters of mercury. There was also moderately to severe 3-plus tricuspid regurgitation. Wow, Catherine. I think it's vital to stop here and highlight the importance of echocardiography in determining the etiology and severity of mitral regurgitation. Catherine just mentioned a lot of important numbers here, such as the vena contracta of 0.7 centimeters. Let's take a moment to review what these numbers mean and what echocardiography can provide for the clinician. Determining the severity of MR involves both qualitative and quantitative metrics on echocardiography. The initial qualitative assessment I start with is color Doppler. A regurgitant jet that occupies roughly 50% of the left atrium is suggestive of severe mitral regurgitation. Unfortunately, color Doppler can be greatly affected by transducer position, left atrial pressure, and LV function. For example, patients with acute mitral regurgitation, elevated left atrial pressures, and a hypotension may actually have a smaller jet whereas a hypertensive patient with mild central MR may actually have a large jet due to the increased afterload. Now remember, eccentric jets tend to travel across the floor or wall of the atrium rather than expanding freely, leading to underestimation of MR severity. And another fun fact for all my cardio nerds out there, 
The Kawanda effect is when this eccentric jet travels adjacent to the left atrial wall once again, leading to underestimation of the mitral regurgitation. Color Doppler also allows you to evaluate the vena contracta. The vena contracta is the point at which the diameter of the regurgitant jet is the least and the velocity is the highest. The width of the vena contracta corresponds to the effective regurgitant orifice area and hence the severity of the MR. A mild vena contracta is less than 3 millimeters and a severe vena contracta is greater than 7. Echo also allows for estimation of regurgitant volume. The stroke volume through any valve can be calculated by the cross-sectional area and velocity time integral through that orifice. In a normal heart, the stroke volume through both the aortic and mitral annulus is going to be equal. However, a regurgitant valve will have a higher volume. The difference of the stroke volume at the mitral annulus and the aortic annulus will be the regurgitant volume. Severe MR is a regurgitant volume greater than 60 cc's. The regurgitant fraction can also be used as a measure for MR severity. It's simply the regurgitant volume over the stroke volume. A fraction greater than 50% is considered severe. Lastly, don't forget, larger regurgitant volumes lead to a greater degree of LV ejection fraction overestimation. The next is the proximal isovelocity surface area. This is a primary method for quantification of mitral regurgitation and is very widely used in clinical practice. I won't dive into the weeds here because we have limited time, but essentially it is based on the concept that the flow convergence zone on the ventricular side of the valve corresponds to the actual regurgitant flow. By setting a predetermined Nyquist limit, we can determine aliasing velocities and the corresponding distance to that aliasing velocity to help solve for effective regurgitant orifice area and solve for regurgitant volumes. This is some really cool stuff, and I highly suggest checking out some of the resources provided by the Society of Echocardiography for more details. Almost done here. Continuous wave Doppler that appears dense and triangular is also suggestive of MR. And lastly, large regurgitant jets can actually lead to blunting or reversal of pulmonary vein flow during systole, another great marker of MR severity. So that was a lot of information. To quickly sum it all up, ECHO allows us to evaluate the mitral valve morphology, left ventricular and left atrial size and function. We're also able to evaluate the jet by color Doppler, vena contracta, and pulmonary vein flow. And finally, quantitative measures such as the EROA, regurgitant volume, and regurgitant fraction. All of this information together allows for accurate assessment and hopefully treatment of the patient. Now, Adi, that was such a terrific review, and it's so useful, important, but also so dense that I've certainly had to review this multiple times. But I think just going back to core principles for the audience, are whenever we look at echo, there are two things to keep in mind. One, what is a structural problem and what is a hemodynamic consequence? And then the second basic principle is that no single measurement on echo is extremely accurate. And so therefore, we rely on redundancy i.e. looking at the same issue from multiple angles with d- different variables to build a story that something is uh, you know, significant or non-significant, right? And so from our first principle, we say the structural problem here is the mitral regurgitation. And so you look at what it looks like on 2D echo, 3D echo to figure out what, you know, just in terms of the structurally, the valve leaflets, the papillary muscles, like what is it that's causing incompetence of the valve, whether it's tethering or it's a perforation or it's flail, etc. And then you look at the hemodynamic consequence. What is it doing to chamber size? Is there 
reversal of flow going backwards. Flow shouldn't go backwards, it should go forwards. Right? Is there flow going backwards into the pulmonary veins? Is there pulmonary hypertension because flow's gone backwards and now you've got group two pulmonary hypertension? And is there now an impact on the right side because of pressure overload from this left-sided lesion? And then all the parameters that we have here to look at and grading the severity of the MR, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the, the mechanisms and the ways that we calculate it, measure it get pretty complex. But essentially, the orifice that the regurgitation is happening through, like how big is that orifice? How fast is the flow? Uh, how much flow is going backwards? And, you know, they, they all sort of get at that same basic principles. And so, you know, in this patient, we'll, we'll be able to use all these principles to really understand how severe is the MR, what is the hemodynamic consequence, and how it's playing, again, back into the weak LV and the patient's pretty advanced symptoms. You're absolutely correct. Thanks for summarizing that up. Now, based off all of that wonderful information that Adi provided us with the value that we get from looking at the echo, we reviewed our patient's echo again. And based on his findings of a dilated left ventricle at 5.7 centimeters and a displaced papillary muscle causing posterior leaflet dysfunction, we believe that his dilated cardiomyopathy led to distortion of the papillary muscle causing a distortion of the mitral valve annulus. In patients with chronic MR, as you said earlier, it can cause many hemodynamic consequences. Such as with our patient, you have an increase in the stroke volume causing LV volume overload. The increasing regurgitant volume causes left atrial dilation in order to maintain normal left atrial pressure. Eventually, the left atrium is unable to dilate any further, and you begin having backflow into the pulmonary system, again leading to group 2 pulmonary hypertension, with an increase in pulmonary venous resistance. Eventually, though, the increase in left atrial pressure and LV end diastolic pressure with concomitant LV dilation leads to increased pulmonary venous resistance thereby causing heart failure signs and symptoms, such as with our patient, pulmonary edema, and significant lower extremity swelling. Let's jump back to the case there, Catherine. What else did you obtain in clinic prior to sending the patient to the hospital? Luckily, we had obtained labs prior to the patient's clinic appointment. Once those labs resulted while he was in clinic, we saw that his sodium was low at 133, his potassium was elevated at 5.9, His BUN was elevated at 61. Serum creatinine was elevated at 2.43. We're unsure of his prior, although he did come with a diagnosis of chronic kidney disease. The BUN of 61 and serum creatinine of 2.4 led to a BUN creatinine ratio of 25, indicative of a pre-renal etiology, such as low cardiac output. His pro-BNP was elevated at 2,400, and his H&H was mildly reduced at 1135. Again, no prior baseline. And his lactate, though, was mildly elevated at 2.6. Based off the patient's physical exam findings, his labs, the imaging we obtained, and just overall picture of this patient that we put together, we felt that he was suffering from NYHA class 3 symptoms and needed admission for IV diuretics. Going through our minds was that once again, this patient was being admitted to the hospital for acute decompensated heart failure, his 10th admission in just seven months. But this time, we wanted to do things differently, and we really wanted to further evaluate second causes for recurrent decompensation despite being on optimal medical therapy and having a CRTD in place. At this time, we turned our attention to severe functional mitral regurgitation as a possible cause for his recurrent decompensation and what we could do to fix that. As Catherine mentioned, that elevated lactate and his overall clinical exam are concerning for a low perfusion state. 
rapid initiation of treatment before further decompensation is extremely vital here. The way I look at the problem is that of decreased forward flow due to poor cardiac contractility, elevated afterload, and of course, the previously mentioned large regurgitant volume. On a usual day, I would start by aggressively reducing afterload with the use of IV vasodilators like nitroprusside or even with mechanical support such as an intraaortic balloon pump. Aggressive diuresis will help decongest the patient, alleviate symptoms, and hopefully shift that Frank Starling curve back towards the left. Inotropes can also be considered here. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, ICU beds, and thus continuous invasive hemodynamic monitoring were unavailable to us. For this reason, the patient was admitted to our cardiac floor, which is phenomenal at UMC, and we began aggressive diuresis and afterload reduction. We initially started the patient on furosemide 120 milligrams twice daily. He did not have a robust urine output with this, and his symptoms did not improve. Instead, his serum creatinine increased, and we were concerned for development of cardiorenal syndrome. Next, we escalated to a furosemide infusion and afterload reduction with oral hydrolysine. With this combination, we were able to get the patient adequately diuresed with an improvement of his JVP from 18 to 12 over the course of a day. So prior to workup for mitral clip or any sort of mitral valve intervention, it's important to know the etiology behind the patient's cardiomyopathy, whether it's ischemic versus non-ischemic. And this goes forward into planning whether or not you need a surgical intervention versus a percutaneous intervention for the mitral valve. In cases where they require surgical intervention, if the patient also has significant coronary disease, it's preferable to intervene on the coronary disease with bypass while fixing the valve as opposed to sending the patient for a reduced sternotomy. In the case of percutaneous intervention, if they have significant coronary disease that would be better served as bypass, then we would send them for a surgical valve replacement at that time as well. For our patient, we had reports they had had negative coronary angiography in the past. However, we didn't have those reports ourselves. So at that time, we decided not only to do a right heart catheterization for evaluation of the valve and his pulmonary pressures, but also do a left heart catheterization to discern if there was any coronary disease that would also need intervention. The left heart catheterization showed mild non-obstructive atherosclerotic disease in the left and right coronary systems, nothing that required intervention. His right heart catheterization was significant for elevated right and left-sided pressures. His right atrium had a pressure of 12 millimeters of mercury. His RV had 55 or 12. His PA mean was 31 millimeters of mercury, and his wedge was elevated at 17 millimeters of mercury. His cardiac output and cardiac index were 5.6 and 2.7, respectively, by FIC. The calculated mean mitral valve gradient was 13 millimeters of mercury, which in a normal case can be indicative of severe mitral stenosis. However, we had an echo that showed us no evidence of mitral stenosis. And in the case of the right heart catheterization, the increased gradient was from the increase in regurgitant volume going across the valve. In order to complete our workup and come full circle, we pursued a transesophageal echo. Now, Audie had previously talked about how great the transthoracic echo is and how important that is for diagnostic as well as treatment purposes. We pursued the transesophageal echo, however, with plans that this patient was not a great surgical candidate and would need further 3D imaging of the mitral valve in order to determine where a mitral clip would need to be placed. 
So this patient underwent a right and left heart catheterization, as well as later a transesophageal echo, as part of a pre-procedural evaluation for a percutaneous intervention on his mitral valve. Now, these patients are interesting. This is a patient that has had recurrent admissions for acute decompensated heart failure, despite being on optimal medical therapy, as well as having a cardiac resynchronization device in place. These are the patients that you need to look at secondary causes for recurrent admission that you can potentially intervene upon. We did this inpatient pre-procedural evaluation with the thought that he has severe MR. That could be a cause of his recurrent admissions, and that is something that we could potentially fix by a percutaneous approach. Even though he may be considered a high-risk surgical patient, these are patients that still have options, such as percutaneous intervention. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. That's a really good point. And I, I applaud you guys for really not only admitting the patient and diuresing them, but really trying to figure out, okay, something's wrong structurally. How can we change the trajectory of this patient's disease process? Because as it is right now, he probably doesn't have long to live. And the time he does have is fairly limited in terms of what he can enjoy. The whole saga of secondary or functional mitral regurgitation from the management perspective has been extraordinarily interesting because We've been very good at managing primary MR, whether it's from prolapse with flail or other ideologies. We've been very good about that from the surgical perspective, and more recently with uh, percutaneous options as well. But we've never been great about secondary MR because of a few key reasons. One, it's always appeared that secondary MR is a symptom, not the cause of problems. It's a symptom of the LV dysfunction. And so would fixing it change the trajectory anyway if morbidity, mortality, and prognosis is not primarily driven by the LV itself? And we have since learned that the degree of functional MR independent of LV indices itself is a poor prognostic indicator. So that's an important learning point for us. The second thing is, okay, if that is an important prognostic indicator, then why can't we fix it surgically? We can, but there's no surgical literature that shows that fixing mitral regurgitation either through a repair or replacement, one, provides a durable result from a repair perspective when you add it onto a cabbage for ischemic MR. And two, that it changes the prognosis that MR brings for the patient. And so the surgical literature is fraught with really uh, not great efficacy in this domain. And then also, uh, it's a very, you know, it's a pretty extravagant procedure to do an open chest for something that may or may not yield benefit. And so three is now we are in an era of less invasive percutaneous options with really an incredible pace of innovation in device technology, imaging techniques and non-invasive assessments to really understand the ideology and plan and intervention with, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, data that shows that this can be uh, effective with very careful patient selection. And so I think just thinking about this patient, one, we know that MR itself, even when secondary, impacts prognosis and clinical trajectory. Two, we don't have good surgical literature, but three, there are new options for these patients I think are all important. And I'm so glad that you're applying this to this patient because I think, again, like we talked about earlier, medicine wards everywhere are filled with patients with this phenotype. And so just the fact that he's under your care and you're giving him these options and really pursuing this just shows a dedication to evidence-based high-quality medicine. And so in our effort to fix the structural problem or in our hopes to do so, what is the evaluation that you pursue further? That was a great summary, and thank you for that. After the right and left heart catheterization, and based off our patient's history and examination with increased risk of any sort of surgical intervention, 
we decided to pursue a transesophageal echo in preparation for a transcatheter mitral valve intervention. The benefits of a transesophageal echo is that it allows us to further map the mitral valve structure via 3D imaging. The TEE revealed a LV ejection fraction of 35% with mild dilation of the left ventricle. The mitral valve, which was our main focus, showed that the leaflets were thickened and did not coapt, most notably between P2 and A2. The apical tinting of the leaflets was still apparent with posterior leaflet dysfunction, and there was a severe central mitral regurgitation with a vena contracta measured in multiple images from 0.7 to 1.0 centimeters. And as Adi said earlier, a vena contracta greater than 0.7 is considered severe. There was also biatrial enlargement, and we still visualized the severe TR. So based off of all of this information, we met with our surgical colleagues and our multidisciplinary group that meets weekly to discuss between advanced heart failure, structural heart team, and cardiothoracic surgery about whether to pursue a surgical or transcatheter intervention. Based off of that discussion and review of imaging with our colleagues, it was determined to pursue a mitroclip as he was considered high risk for surgical intervention. So based off of all of this information, I want to just take a step back and discuss the current guidelines involved in transcatheter intervention with MitraClip, as well as the studies that got us to our guidelines that we currently use today. Dr. Latour, do you mind enlightening us further? Sure. So, well, luckily, we have some great ACC AHA guidelines that were recently updated this year. But before we get to those guidelines, we have to know where they came from. And there were three major trials that have affected those guidelines. The first trial was Everest II. It was published in 2015 as a prospective multi-center randomized control trial. They enrolled a total of 279 patients with grade 3 plus to 4 plus severe symptomatic MR that include primary and secondary mitral regurgitation. They compared the safety and effectiveness of MitraClip to surgical repair. And what did Everest show? Among patients with severe mitral regurgitation, repair with a percutaneous mitral valve clip is feasible and showed improvement in severity of MR and symptoms. MitraClip showed improved safety at 30 days as compared with surgery. This was mostly due to reduced blood transfusion. But on the other hand, MitraClip also showed more recurrent MR. In the end, the most important part of this trial was that they had a subset of patients with secondary MR that had better outcomes and therefore paved the way for MITRA-FR and COAP trials. The next trial was MITRA-FR. It was a European-based randomized parallel control trial that compared guideline-directed medical therapy to percutaneous mitral valve repair for severe functional mitral regurgitation. It was originally presented in August of 2018 at ESC. They enrolled a total of 304 patients with a mean age of 70 in which 21% of those patients were female. And so what did MITRA-FR conclude? It concluded that among patients with secondary severe mitral regurgitation, percutaneous MR repair with MitraClip was not beneficial. It was not associated with a reduction of death or hospitalization from heart failure, but did show a reduction of the severity of MR. The lack of benefit was really thought to be secondary to their severe cardiomyopathy and poor prognosis. Lastly, there was the COAP trial, which was a multi-center randomized controlled trial that was presented at ACC in September of 2019. They enrolled a total of 610 patients at 78 sites in the United States and Canada. These patients had moderate to severe or severe secondary MR. They were also symptomatic despite maximally tolerated guideline-directed medical therapy, and they compared guideline-directed medical therapy to mitroclip repair. 
And what did COAP conclude? In patients with heart failure and moderate to severe or severe secondary mitrogurgitation who remain symptomatic despite maximally tolerated guideline-directed medical therapy, transcatheter mitral leaflet approximation with the mitral clip was safe, provided durable reduction in MR, reduced the rate of heart failure hospitalizations, and improved survival, quality of life, and functional capacity at 24-month follow-up. Importantly, the number needed to treat for heart failure hospitalization was three, and death from any cause was only 5.9. And those are some powerful numbers. Therefore, MitraClip was the first therapy to show improved mortality and prognosis of patients with severe secondary MR due to LV dysfunction or heart failure. Wow. So what about that difference with MitraFR and the COAP trial? Well, there are a few possibilities. First off, the patients enrolled in the COAP trial have more severe MR, mostly because of the difference in the United States and European guidelines. Another possibility is that the patients enrolled in the COAP trial were confirmed to be failing maximally tolerated guideline-directed medical therapy at baseline, while the MITRA-FR trial allowed for variable adjustment in each group and therefore followed a real-world protocol. Lastly, the patients enrolled in the MITRA-FR trial had more severe LV cavity dilation, which may have affected or blunted the improvement in outcomes due to the irreversible LV cavity remodeling. Yeah, Chris, those points are so important. And when people say the results of the MITRA FR and the results of the COAP trial are essentially in disagreement with one another, I think really a better approach to consider it is that there are essentially two sides of the same coin and in totality really help understand what the proper patient selection is. Because as you said, just to go back to all the wonderful discussion we had about grading MR, it's such a complicated situation that even like major society guidelines disagree, right? And European guidelines for functional mitral regurgitation is a cutoff of EROA or effective regurgitant orifice area above 20 millimeters squared that's considered severe, whereas in the American guidelines, that cutoff is 40. And so MITRA FR use a European cutoffs and essentially had less severe MR. In addition, COAPT excluded patients with very severe LV cavity dilation. And so the COAPT trial patients had more severe MR and less severe LV dilation. And so you can imagine that this was a population of patients that had, and this is a very interesting concept of disproportionate MR, where maybe it's more the MR that drives prognosis and trajectory. Whereas the MITRA FR population may have been patients who've had more out-of-proportion LV dysfunction compared to the degree of MR itself. And so fixing the MR may not necessarily alter the trajectory. So that's a really important differentiating point and really, uh, again, goes into that 2020 uh, guideline update in terms of selection for MitraClip. But then also, as you said, in the COAP trial, there was a mandatory run-in period where patients had to essentially tolerate guideline-directed optimal heart failure therapy, including CRT, if appropriate. And so what that did was it removed any patient whose clinical status and or MR improved with just guideline-directed medical therapy alone. So these are patients in whom maybe the mitral regurgitation itself was not the primary driver of prognosis, but rather the LV dysfunction and the neurohormonal status and or electrical dyssynchrony. And so we take care of those things. Now they're no longer candidates to be randomized. Conversely, in MITRA FR, patients on both ends of that randomization were actively having titration of guideline-directed medical therapy. And so you could have had improvements on both sides related to neurohormonal blockade independent of the structural intervention. And so, you know, just thinking about who's the optimal patient, there are probably patients who 
don't have as severe LV dysfunction, had disproportionate MR, already on maximally tolerated optimal heart failure therapy, including neurohormonal blockade, cardiac resynchronization therapy when relevant, and of course, revascularization were relevant. And so really important, they are both additive, and there's going to be sort of a combined meta-analysis, combined, combining the data of both trials that'll help clarify this further, uh, in addition to other trials like the Matterhorn and whatnot, that I think we're going to get a lot of interesting information in this really rapidly evolving field. I absolutely agree. And when it comes to severe symptomatic secondary MR, we need to know a few things, as discussed before. We need to know what the patient's LV ejection fraction is, is revascularization indicated, and are they on guideline-directed medical therapy, including being a candidate for CRTD. In our patient, we know that our LV ejection fraction is reduced. He also has non-obstructive coronary artery disease, not requiring revascularization. He is on guideline-directed medical therapy and already has a CRTD that was placed back in February. Despite all of these therapies, he is still requiring frequent hospitalizations due to ongoing heart failure symptoms and therefore required a multidisciplinary approach to determine if he was a surgical or transcatheter mitral valve repair candidate. And something else you may be asking, we're talking a lot about this mitra clip. What is a mitra clip? The mitra clip device is a small metal clip covered with a polyester fabric that treats mitral regurgitation using percutaneous venous access and a transeptal approach by manually clipping together the anterior and posterior mitral valve leaflets performing an edge-to-edge repair. It creates a double orifice valve that will continue to open and close and allow blood flow on both sides of the clip while reducing blood flow in the opposite or regurgitant direction. Catherine, how did the procedure go? Thank you, Chris. So our patient, like Chris said, was perfect for a mitroclip intervention based on current guidelines. For our patient, he was actually discharged home for a period of one month on optimal medical therapy and brought back as an outpatient for a mitroclip procedure. Mitroclip procedure itself is done in the cath lab under fluoroscopy as well as transesophageal echo guidance. We gain access via the venous system, typically the right common femoral vein, and proceed over to left atrium via transeptal approach. Once we have gained access to left atrium, we then extend the mitral clip below the level of the mitral valve and attempt to pinch the leaflets within the clip itself. We then pause under fluoro as well as ultrasound guidance. We'll see how much regurgitant volume is left. If it is not significant and we have shown that we have secured both leaflets, we will then deploy the mitral clip. In the case of our patient, the first microclip was deployed, but on fluoroscopy, as well as under ultrasound guys, there was still significant regurgitant volume. His overall mitral regurgitation went from severe to moderate, but we felt that we could improve further. The decision was made at that time to deploy a second microclip lateral to the first, which actually decreased his mitral regurgitation further from moderate to mild. Based off of our measurements at the beginning of the case, his left atrial pressure was initially 25 millimeters of mercury with V waves all the way up to 70 millimeters of mercury. After deploying the second clip, his V waves dropped from 70 to 15 millimeters of mercury, and the resultant mitral gradient was 3, showing that we did not have any significant stenosis despite having two mitral clips in place. That's such a tremendous hemodynamic response. And actually, in the back of my mind, I was wondering, like, did you actually feel comfortable putting and deploying mitroclips with uh, such a profound transmitral gradient? I think it was about 13 or 15 at baseline. But clearly, the mitral valve was opening, and you thought that very accurately so, that the gradient was predominantly flow-driven rather than structural limitation of orifice-driven. So you had a great result. And, you know, this 
procedure is just such an example of the power of the heart team. It's just, it wouldn't be possible without surgical expertise and surgical backup. And really, a lot of the advances that we've had in this area have very much so required advances in imaging. And so the partners that we have, the structural imagers that do this in partnership with a structural interventional cardiologist, that partnership is just is so important for successful pre-procedure planning, but then also troubleshooting intra-procedurally as well, and then also gauging the success of the procedure. And so that partnership is just so vital. And I think we're going to see a really interesting training paradigms to support this as we go forward. Yes, I completely agree with you. One of the things during the initial right heart catheterization and left heart catheterization that the patient underwent was the elevated mitral valve gradient of 13. And so at that point, it really becomes important to look back at our transesophageal echo, our transthoracic echo, and see was there any evidence of mitral stenosis? Because when placing a mitral clip, if there's any evidence of mitral stenosis, it's contraindication to place a clip that could worsen that stenosis. But luckily with our patient, we believe that all of that elevated gradient of 13 was due to just flow across the valve from his regurgent volume. And then reducing that gradient to three after the procedure showed that our theory was correct. Also, the transesophageal echo showed no evidence of stenosis, which made us feel better about pursuing mitroclip. Yeah, absolutely. And so in that pre-procedure imaging, we were making sure there was no pre-existent the sort of structural mitral stenosis. We wanted to make sure that the anatomy was amenable to mitral clip implantation. But we're also in a patient with atrial fibrillation making sure there's no LA thrombus because that itself would have been a major contraindication. And so, you know, really important features there. And this patient right now, at this point, Mitra clip is the only sort of FDA-approved device for this indication, but really the, the whole field is expanding and exploding with different options. This is sort of an edge-to-edge a leaflet coaptation device or other devices that perform similar function like the Pascal device. But then we think, okay, back earlier when we were talking about the cause of functional mitral regurgitation and the imbalance of tethering and closing forces, we said annular dilation itself is a major contributor to the pathophysiology. And so there are devices that are being actively studied and developed for annual plasty themselves, like indirect annual plasty with a Carillon device or direct annual plasty with a Cardioband device. There are possibilities for cordal implantation just to improve the closing forces. And then these are all repair devices. There's a whole host of transcatheter mitral valve replacement options, either using balloon expandable valves that were intended for the aortic position, for valve and valve, valve and MAC, valve and ring. But then also under development are devices that are particularly designed for the challenges of the mitral valve itself. This large valve with an asymmetric three-dimensional annulus that's saddle-shaped without a lot of calcification usually to anchor the valve. So it's just, there's a huge explosion in device technologies. And I think we're going to see a lot of interesting data come out of this. But how did your patient do once the mitral clips were deployed? Our patient actually did wonderful following the procedure. He was able to be discharged the following day on optimal medical therapy Two months following the procedure, he was evaluated in our clinic, and he had not required any hospitalizations during that time. His functional status had greatly improved. Previously, if you'll remember, he had trouble getting up from his chair and walking to the room next door. Now he was able to walk to his mailbox at the far end of his driveway, complete all of his activities of daily living. He was no longer restricted by shortness of breath. He actually got to sleep in his bed at night. He had no further episodes of orthopnea or PND. 
We were so excited about this patient's outcome and that we truly had a significant impact on his quality of life just by pursuing a secondary workup for his symptoms. You guys, I like almost have tears in my eyes, you know, like not to be cheesy or corny, but how amazing is it to be able to make such an incredible impact in someone's life and to be able to do so in a way that really starts off at the bedside, takes this incredible journey through the cutting edge revolutionary niches of advanced multimodality imaging, invasive hemodynamics, coronary angiography cutting-edge device therapies, using a multidisciplinary heart team approach at an advanced center like the University of Mississippi. But really, at the end of the day, you get back to the bedside, and you've made such an incredible impact on his quality of life, I believe his longevity of life, the way he can interact with his loved ones, and you know, just something as simple as being able to get to the mailbox. It's just a it's really such a beautiful thing to be able to provide this sort of service for anybody. And we ask everyone on our show, why did you choose cardiology? But this is it, right? I mean, your patient story, this is why you go into cardiology. But guys, on that note, one, I just applaud you all as a center and as colleagues for highlighting his story, doing such a great job with his care and teaching us using his story. But also at this point, Catherine, Chris, Adi, I'd like to ask you all, why did you choose cardiology? What do you love about it? And what are your thoughts on training at the University of Mississippi? For me, I first started gravitating towards cardiology in medical school. Cardiac physiology was intriguing and in the end was just really made sense to me. And honestly, I think we all go into medicine for a single goal is to be able to help people and to affect people's lives. And in the end, cardiology is a phenomenal way of doing so. Cardiovascular disease in general does not discriminate by socioeconomic background, race, or nationality. And you can really, truly make differences in someone's lives, just like our patient. I was one of those guys in medical school that enjoyed every single rotation. I got to surgery and I was like, I want to be a surgeon. I got to internal medicine. I was like, I'm going to be a medicine doctor. After going through all the rotations, one day I walked into the cath lab and was like, wow, it's the multidisciplinary approach to the field that really attracted me. It involves bedside care and physical exam, diagnostic imaging, and procedures and gives you immediate gratification when you treat the patient. I have to agree with Chris and Adi on all accounts. For me, I was born and raised in Mississippi. And as Chris said, cardiovascular disease affects everyone. And I appreciate the instant gratification, especially going into the interventional field, as Adi said. But overall, this was a complex disease process that could make a difference in somebody's life as example by this patient. And it led me to want to do that for all future patients. Growing up in Mississippi, these are my neighbors. These are the people that I want to take care of. I want to take care of the sickest of the sick and help make them better, if at all possible. Now, why I chose Mississippi, not only to take care of my neighbors, the people that I'm around in my community, but also because UMC is fantastic. My favorite thing about UMC is that we are guaranteed great training. We're the only level one trauma center, the only academic medical center in the state, which means we're the primary referral center for the most complex cases with the most interesting pathology. Some of the other benefits is that we are the only interventional fellowship, the only advanced heart failure fellowship, and we're home to one of the first congenital fellowship programs in the nation. We have phenomenal faculty. We have faculty from Cleveland Clinic, as well as UAB and Duke and Miami, all coming to Mississippi to provide fellow education and 
that resource of our faculty is another reason that I decided to stay. Just to kind of add on to UMC, I love the place. My favorite thing about UMC are the people. Everyone is extremely friendly and very approachable. I've probably called all of my attendings at this point past nine o'clock, whether they're on call or not with questions or just anything I was curious about. I remember when I was studying for step one, I always thought, wow, I'm never going to see this in my life. Why do I have to know this right now? At UMC, I think I've honestly seen all of step one now. And I honestly feel that the care I provide here is very impactful. Your patients never forget you. Lastly, the history of the university. We had one of the first heart transplants, the first lung transplant. The most widely published anatomy and physiology book by Dr. Guyton and Hall was written here. Dr. Hall still works here, and his son is actually a professor in our department. With all those great resources, the university is pushing the envelope in the state. Guys, I've spent so many hours with that textbook, Guyton and Hall, really well written. So clearly a tremendous resource over there. But seriously, Catherine, Chris, Adi, thank you so much for this whirlwind tour of how to really take care of these patients with secondary MR who are just not doing well. I think if this episode can help raise awareness of the possibilities uh, that are available to them that weren't there just five years ago, I think this would be such a successful endeavor. But more so also, it's just so clear how you all function as a family with a training with such incredible faculty using the laboratory of Jackson, Mississippi and surrounding areas at your fingertips to really impact care and do great things. So thank you so much. Just incredible to get a glimpse of that. I hope we get a chance to visit you guys for real, but this has been a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome down here anytime. We will take you out to the reservoir and take you boating. We'll do some water skiing. I promise you'll have a great time. And nothing beats Southern barbecue. So if you're ever feeling barbecue, just come down here. All the time. All right, you guys are on. Thank you. And now for our ECPR, may I do the honors to introduce the great Dr. Kellen Ashley. Dr. Ashley went to residency here at the University of Mississippi, where she was chief president. She then went to Cleveland Clinic for general and interventional cardiology. And now she has returned to UMC to start a robust structural program providing patients in the state with TAVR, MitraClip, and a multitude of other options for treatment. I just want to say Dr. Ashley has been a phenomenal mentor for all of us here. Her dedication to patient care and education is second to none. She has truly inspired me to work harder and always advocate for the patient. I can't tell you how many times I've seen her here at the university late into the night whether or not she's on call and how many times she's supported me while I'm on call. We're fortunate to have her and now I look forward to hearing her speak more on this case. Wow, thanks, Adi, for that very generous introduction. I would also like to say thanks to Adi, Catherine, and Chris for asking me to participate in this presentation. It is a privilege to bring this case to you all, and we thank Amit and Daniel for providing us with this opportunity. As Adi said, my name is Kellen Ashley, and I'm from a small town in North Mississippi. I was born in Tupelo, the birthplace of Elvis Presley, and I grew up around New Albany, the birthplace of William Faulkner. I moved here to Jackson for medical school and internal medicine residency at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which included a year as chief resident. I braved a move outside the southeast when I moved to Cleveland, Ohio for five years to pursue cardiology and interventional cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic. I moved back to the southeast and ultimately came home to the University of Mississippi Medical Center as the director of the Structural Heart Program. Two of the biggest reasons I came back here are highlighted with this case. One, I can make a big impact on the health of my fellow Mississippians. And two, I get to work with exceptional fellows, three of which you have met in this presentation. 
As much attention as aortic valve disease, and particularly TAVR, has gotten in the last 10 years, and rightfully so, it is shocking to realize that mitral valve disease is two to three times more common than aortic valve disease. In an echo study of patients older than 65, 2.3% had moderate to severe mitral regurgitation. For this reason, when I came back to Mississippi, we started the MitraClip program, and we were the second program in the entire state at that time. Mitral regurgitation is a much more complex valve disease than aortic stenosis. There are numerous components of the mitral apparatus that are involved in the normal, competent performance of the mitral valve. Mitral regurgitation can result from dysfunction in any of those components the left ventricle, papillary muscles, chordae tendinae, mitral leaflets, and the mitral annulus. As you all know and have described, there are two categories of mitral regurgitation, primary or degenerative and secondary or functional. Primary MR consists of abnormalities of the leaflets or chordae, such as prolapse or flail. Secondary or functional MR results from abnormalities of the left ventricle or occasionally the left atrium. As common as MR is, secondary is two to three times more common than primary. There are approximately 6.5 million Americans suffering from heart failure, and it is estimated that one in five of them has moderately severe to severe secondary mitral regurgitation. We also now know that these patients with significant MR have much poorer survival, with an estimated one-year mortality of over 50%. The survivors require more resources with less hospitalization-free and transplant-free survival. Secondary MR is harder to both identify and quantify, as the severity can vary dramatically related to left ventricular loading conditions, heart rhythm, conduction system disease, or ischemia. Therefore, it requires a low index of suspicion, as in our patient. It oftentimes requires taking into account the patient's clinical history and symptoms, as well as physical exam findings. As mentioned, a murmur can oftentimes be difficult to appreciate. Sometimes it requires bedside maneuvers to increase left ventricular afterload, such as hand grip, in order to increase the intensity of the murmur. Transthoracic echo is oddly described as the mainstay for diagnosis. This helps identify the etiology, mechanism, severity, and secondary effects of significant mitral regurgitation. It is important to evaluate the leaflet characteristics and calcification, as well as leaflet motion, the size of the mitral annulus, whether calcification is present in the annulus, left ventricular and left atrial volumes, left ventricular and right ventricular function, pulmonary venous flow, degree of tricuspid regurgitation, and pulmonary artery pressures. As highlighted by our discussion of the echo, quantifying the severity of MR becomes much more difficult in eccentric jets. It's important to record as many of the objective measurements as possible, vena contractile width, PISA radius, calculated effective regurgitant orifice area, and regurgitant volume or fraction. It's also essential to describe the secondary effects associated with MR so that taking all of these components in total, one can get a more accurate impression of the severity. If the transthoracic echo is not adequate or is discrepant to the clinical history, transesophageal echo or cardiac MRI can be helpful in further evaluation. Keep in mind that due to the sedation associated with TE imaging, Patients often have lower blood pressures, and this favorably alters left ventricular loading conditions and will decrease the degree of MR noted. Therefore, other studies done while the patient is awake should be used where able to make clinical decisions. An often forgotten test in my experience is exercise stress echo, which can be useful when there are discrepant findings between tests and clinical symptoms. Seeing an increase in degree of MR with exercise can sometimes be very beneficial in making the diagnosis. 
We also use invasive evaluation relatively frequently, combining invasive hemodynamics and sometimes left ventriculography for further assessment to put together the entire clinical picture. This is all essential, as you guys described, because identifying the etiology of MR determines the treatment strategies and prognosis. Primary MR should be treated predominantly with surgical mitral valve repair or replacement if the patient is a surgical candidate. If not a surgical candidate, transcatheter mitral valve edge-to-edge repair with MitraClip is an option as it was FDA-approved in 2013 for prohibitive risk surgical candidates. As Amit stated, we have done a reasonably good job over the years in taking care of patients with primary MR. However, secondary MR has not been as favorable. As we've highlighted, secondary MR is much more complex to manage. First and foremost, it's always been uncertain whether the MR was a symptom of the problem, the LV dysfunction, or if it had negative impact on survival in and of itself. As our host eloquently described, we have found that in patients with secondary mitral regurgitation, the mitral regurgitation itself is actually an independent predictor of mortality. From a management perspective, we know from heart failure trials that guideline-directed medical therapy is the mainstay of treatment, and I would say preferably managed by an advanced heart failure specialist as early as possible. The standard therapies of beta blockade, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system blockade, angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibition, and sodium glucose cotransporter 2 inhibition are all added in a stepwise fashion over months as tolerated. Cardiac resynchronization therapy, where indicated, also can improve left ventricular function, decrease left ventricular volumes, and improve MR. This should be considered in all patients who are candidates, such as those with left bundle branch block, particularly if the QRS duration is greater than 150 milliseconds. Consideration should also be given to restoring sinus rhythm to those in atrial fibrillation, and revascularization should be pursued where possible for those with ischemic MR. For those with persistent symptoms and at least moderately severe functional MR after guideline-directed therapy for three months, traditionally our only treatment option for many years was surgical mitral valve repair or replacement. Surgery consisted of either repair with a downsized annuloplasty ring or cordal sparing valve replacement. However, the outcomes from surgical therapy and functional MR have been less than inspiring with no data showing survival benefit. Therefore, related to the lack of benefit, We typically reserve mitral valve surgery to those who need cabbage or other valve surgery. That scenario is a Class 2A recommendation in the 2017 ACC-AHA guidelines. Otherwise, without another reason for surgery than the mitral valve disease, surgical mitral valve repair or replacement receives a Class 2B recommendation. Transcatheter mitral valve edge-to-edge repair with MitraClip is based on the surgical Alfieri stitch and results in edge-to-edge approximation of the mitral valve anterior and posterior leaflets with the clip at the point of malcoaptation, resulting in a double orifice mitral valve. As mentioned, MitraClip had reasonable outcomes in terms of reduction in the degree of MR and symptoms, as well as decreased heart failure hospitalizations in the Everest trial, which led to its initial FDA approval for degenerative MR in prohibitive risk surgical patients in 2013. Subsequently, the COAP trial evaluated this therapy specifically in 614 patients with symptomatic heart failure and functional MR. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to either guideline-directed medical therapy or guideline-directed medical therapy with transcatheter mitral valve repair with MitraClip. I remember being at the late-breaking clinical trial session at TCT in San Diego in 2018 when these results were presented. 
The excitement was palpable and was like no other session I've ever witnessed. I don't think anyone was surprised that the primary outcome of reduced heart failure hospitalizations was met. However, it was met impressively with a number needed to treat of just three patients. I think what was most surprising and very exciting was that patients treated with edge-to-edge repair with MitraClip also had improved survival over two years with a number needed to treat of just six patients. This opened a new door in the treatment options for patients with heart failure and at least moderately severe symptomatic functional MR. This data led to the FDA approval of MitraClip in March 2019 for use in patients with secondary MR who meet the inclusion criteria of the COAP trial. Specifically, these are patients with symptomatic heart failure with left ventricular ejection fractions of between 20 and 50 percent and at least moderately severe MR in spite of guideline-directed medical therapy and cardiac resynchronization therapy if indicated. The left ventricular end systolic dimension should be less than 70 millimeters, and the pulmonary artery systolic pressure should be less than 70 millimeters of mercury. As Chris brilliantly discussed, however, the COAP results are in stark contrast to the MITRA-FR results, which were actually presented the month before at ESC in August 2018. As has been discussed in many circles, the patient populations studied were different. That's in part related to the differing European guidelines for the severity of MR as we discussed. There were also differences in rigor of guideline-directed medical therapy, with the MITRA-FR patients more of a real-world approach. Also, MITRA-FR patients had more dilated left ventricular volumes than the COAP patients. This ultimately has led to the realization of a new relationship that we are just starting to better understand, and that is the concept of disproportionate and proportionate MR, as Amit described. It seems that the benefits of edge-to-edge repair with MitraClip in patients with secondary MR are greater when the degree of MR exceeds or is disproportionate to that which is expected based on the degree of LV dilation. These patients were more common in coapt. There was a post hoc analysis of COAP patients who matched the MITRA-FR patients more closely with more dilated ventricles and thus proportionate MR. These patients, interestingly, did not show benefit with transcatheter edge-to-edge repair with MitraClip. So I think we are just beginning to understand some of these nuances regarding more appropriate patient selection and where the device would lead to improve outcomes. I think there will be more data coming down the pike that will help parse this out a bit, There are other trials, Reshape, HF2, and Matterhorn, which are enrolling and should help to guide therapy in these secondary MR patients. In addition, there are other areas of interest and study for therapies to address other components of the mitral apparatus with repair versus transcatheter mitral valve replacement options. It is truly an exciting and ever-expanding field, and it will be interesting to see what the next few years have in store, much like the early days of TAVR. Circling back to our patient, as Catherine outlined, he had been admitted numerous times to outside facilities for symptomatic heart failure and had been on and off varying degrees of optimal medical therapy depending on what his hemodynamics would allow. He also had cardiac resynchronization therapy, yet still he was extremely symptomatic and failing to stay out of the hospital. You guys covered all the reasons that his history and physical exam were concerning. I think here it's important to emphasize that most of the time the transthoracic echo will be diagnostic, but sometimes it's not, when the jet is very eccentric or if the echo windows are poor. I think a low threshold for both TEE imaging and right heart catheterization should be maintained. 
I think it is also essential to have this low threshold as early as possible in the process. Because if we can find the moderately severe to severe MR before the ventricle is excessively dilated, then we can drastically alter the course and outcomes of these patients, as we see from the COAP data. I think also important to emphasize, as we saw with the care of our patient, it is essential to employ a multidisciplinary approach. There was involvement in our case by interventional cardiology, advanced heart failure, cardiac imaging, cardiac anesthesia, and cardiac surgery. I think this approach is mandatory to adequately care for these very complex patients. The mitral clip procedure itself was very satisfying, as Catherine described. We don't often get these type of results, but to watch his left atrial pressure drop and the peak V wave to drop from 70 to 15 millimeters of mercury, we knew we had the optimal result. I want to say that it is not uncommon to use two or more mitral clips as long as the mean gradient will tolerate in these functional MR patients, as the jet are usually broader and require approximation of more tissue to reduce the MR when compared to primary MR. Our patient had a very straightforward procedure with two clips deployed, and he was discharged home the following day. As Catherine mentioned, he was evaluated in follow-up and thus far has not been admitted for heart failure and is symptomatically improved with only mild residual mitral regurgitation by follow-up echo. I just have to say that it is patients like this that remind me of why I chose cardiology and particularly interventional cardiology for my career. I believe, like all of you, that we altered the trajectory of this man's life, and it is for this reason that I absolutely love what I do. And as our fellows have attested, we have the best environment in which to do it. We take care of the sickest patients as the only academic medical center in the state, and we have the best people involved, from our ancillary staff to the very top leaders. We are a family here at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and we always love having new members. So come visit. I just have to warn you, though, we are the hospitality state, so you might not want to leave. And now I have the honor of introducing y'all to our fearless fellowship program director, Dr. Donald Trey Clark. Dr. Clark went to medical school at UMMC and did his internal medicine residency and chief residency at UAB. He then continued his training at the Cleveland Clinic for Cardiology Fellowship. He has since returned to his home state of Mississippi. And since his return, he has immersed himself into the community and spearheaded our telehealth and preventative cardiology programs. As a future non-invasive cardiologist, his mentorship has been deeply important in my development as a young physician. And I'm excited to hear his comments on the program for future fellowship applicants. Hello, my name is Trey Clark. I'm the program director for the Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship Training Program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you to the Cardio Nerds team for hosting this podcast and providing such a wonderful educational resource. Here at UMMC, we have trained more than 140 cardiologists since the fellowship program was established in 1965. We currently accept five fellows per year into the general fellowship program and also offer advanced fellowships in interventional cardiology, advanced heart failure transplant, and adult congenital heart disease. UMMC is the only academic medical center in Mississippi and represents one of the largest cardiovascular practices in our state. Within cardiology, we have state-of-the-art facilities in our university heart center, which includes cardiac catheterization labs, electrophysiology labs, non-invasive imaging suites, faculty offices, and conference rooms, all which are directly connected to the main adult hospital. Our heart center provides fellows a centralized hub for learning and collaboration in a cutting-edge environment. The case you've heard today is a good reflection of the large volume of patients at our institution receiving care across the spectrum of cardiovascular diseases. 
We have active programs in interventional and structural heart disease, adult congenital heart disease, advanced heart failure transplant, electrophysiology, and advanced cardiac imaging. General and consultative cardiology remain a cornerstone of the training program, which are supplemented by additional training opportunities at the Jackson VA Medical Center, located directly adjacent to UMMC. Through this breadth and depth of exposure, we feel our fellows are extremely well prepared to excel in any clinical scenario. Fellows interested in research have tremendous opportunities here. UMMC is the primary site of the NIH-sponsored Jackson Heart Study, which is the largest single-center cohort study evaluating cardiovascular disease among African Americans. Fellows interested in basic science have the opportunity to work on cardiorenal and metabolic research in the world-renowned Department of Physiology, perhaps best known for the widely used Guyton Hall Textbook of Physiology. Our new School of Population Health offers fellows the opportunity for advanced training in data science, healthcare, economics, clinical trials, and population health science. I'd like to conclude by commenting on the greatest strength of our program, the people and the culture. Mississippi has among the highest rates of cardiovascular disease in the country. Without a doubt, here at UMC, there is a mission-focused culture to provide world-class care in a collegial, patient-centered environment. Our fellows are central to this mission, and we are fortunate to recruit among the most passionate and dedicated physicians year after year. Catherine, Chris, and Adi, who you've heard from in this podcast, are great reflections of this talented group. As faculty, we feel privileged to have the opportunity to work alongside our fellows and be part of their journey towards a successful career in cardiovascular medicine. Thanks again for the opportunity to contribute to this podcast. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.